Welcome back to Inspiring Neighbors Podcast, where we showcase seemingly ordinary people with extraordinary stories. Today we had a really cool guest on. His name is Nick Blay. Nick Blay is the head of design for Toronto's leading immersive theater company, Outside the March. And Nick, I knew from junior high school, and it had been almost 20 years, I think, since talking to him, and I reached out to him and said, do you want to come on? And, and he said, yeah. And I'm very grateful he did. That's amazing. I feel like it was worth it, you going to this middle school for us to be able to meet Nick and have this interview. So good job, Trevor, making the most out of those middle school connections. Thank you. Thanks for the respect. Um, Nick is an award-winning theater designer, and he talked to us a lot about his journey into that, uh, his journey through drama, um, kind of it starting as acting and moving quickly as he found his passion for theater design and sticking with that for mm-hmm. many, many years. And we got to talk to him about some really cool topics and opened, he opened our eyes to the things that happen in the background of a mm-hmm. performance. And mm-hmm. that was really cool for me to see. Same. Yeah. I feel, uh, it was, uh, as a, as a fan of, theater that knows very little about theater it was Mm -hmm. so cool to see some behind the scenes stuff and not just uh both from the actual uh craft side of things of how things are made and the thought that goes behind them the processes the teams uh but the what you learn as a person in that field like the the lessons to you take away and the the maturity i guess that you you gain and and the ways that you approach things after spending years collaborating with, a, you know, t- teams of people who are so invested in what they do. That, that was so interesting. Yeah. And I like, I like seeing, this happens almost every time now, but I like seeing topics get rediscussed. <laughs> Things like self-doubt or confidence or leadership or how to motivate people. <laughs> All of those were discussed under the umbe- or under the umbrella of theater and i thought mm-hmm. that was really cool to see from a different perspective similar like teachings but different mm-hmm. perspectives exactly well said so without further ado uh thank you for listening please continue to share your feedback on what you think of these episodes and please enjoy nick blay let's talk to our neighbors everyone can inspire the inspiring neighbors podcast like Jafar. uh how what was it like receiving a message from me um <laughs> weird i actually saw it uh and i i think i saw it at night and then um i woke up in the morning and i was like did i was that real <laughs> um and i opened it and i was like oh yeah that was a real message because i mean you know people in people in dreams you know they they yep. come from all over and from different time periods of your of your life um yeah. so yeah i had to check in the morning if it was real i probably would have done the same so my first question is what what was it about drama and acting and theater that you loved like what got you into that I think I think if you'd asked me then, it would have been like, oh, I love to perform and I love the spotlight and and all of that stuff. But I, uh, but quite honestly, I think what got me into it initially was probably my older brother. I looked up to him a lot, um, and he found that friend group. Like he found drama, um, 
and sort of brought it home um and then started like wanting to perform and that being a part of his life and i wanted to be a part of you know his life and uh copy him but better him you know like that was you know being brothers i wanted to be better than him yep. at, at everything and i wasn't <laughs> at anything. but uh but yeah but like back then I, I i was also so afraid of living in his shadow too so i was very like yeah i'm gonna take this thing that you did first and and double down and and do it twice as twice as much or or twice as um heartedly oh cool were your parents involved in theater at all no not really um my dad was pretty jockey um mm -hmm. in school but also as an adult he's very sports centric and so were we growing up but yeah i slowly transitioned out of uh sports and and replaced them with you know fine art and and theater until yeah, until they were gone, <laughs> until I didn't do uh, really any any sort of sports anymore. Um, but uh, my mom was was uh, like artistic growing up, and and her mother, my grandmother, uh, was very artistic, but uh, not in sort of a professional capacity. Not in a like uh, that wasn't a direction they took professionally in their in their lives. It was more of a a thing they just had an artistic skill that they just had. So. It was it was Very weird. Like I I wasn't I didn't have an inherent uh, artistic quality about me, and I I would say still in some ways I don't. Um, uh, I come at it from I think a more of a um, a mathematical way most mm. often, uh, and I think mm. I I inherited that from somewhere. Who knows? Very interesting. Yeah, I was, that's very interesting. I was just looking like yesterday we were looking at uh, your portfolio on your website. And then I hear you say, I don't think of myself as artistic. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> how can you not? Sure. But then you explained it and it makes sense. You, you just come yeah. at it from not that artistic side, but you still are very artistic, I would say. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it was like, I had to like, you know, I didn't draw a lot as a kid. Like, I, I mean, maybe I, maybe I did, I guess, but I wasn't like, um, it wasn't my favorite thing to do. I don't have like sketchbooks from when I was a kid. Uh, mm -hmm. paintings from when I was a kid I you know um, I had to learn how to draw after I decided to become a theater designer um, yeah. it's it's not a common direction to sort of take to the field but um, mm -hmm. uh, it yeah it worked it worked out so far Trevor mentioned uh, your confidence that was remarkable at, at such an early age and I kind of feel like it's a it's a, like a requirement for the job if you're going to be in theater especially at an early age like you must be confident because i remember the kids that were in theater in my school like middle school or high school more like that they just were full of confidence and they made it look so cool the thing that you would be like terrified to do they made it look like they were having the best time of their lives and just sure like... <laughs> so i was just curious like where does where did you think your confidence came from? Like, uh, I, I mean, I think it's all made up, to be honest. Um, I think anybody who works in theater will will tell you that it's they're, they're very confident people, but also very insecure people. Um, I think it's because of the sort of presentational aspect. You, it's easier to present a fake version than a real version, uh, <laughs> quite often. Um, uh, so yeah, I I think it the the faux confidence came from yeah like rep like repetition comfort with like the material uh especially like when i when you were, i was acting which i don't do anymore yeah comfort with the material really uh uh and the fun of it allows you to sort of 
really dive in and and I guess appear more confident with it. But also, uh, yeah, you're also behind that sort of veneer. You're very insecure about, oh, did I do this right? So where it, yeah, where it came from, I, I yeah, I have no idea really. Other than <laughs> other than maybe like a desire to impress, you know, mm -hmm. that was definitely important to me then. It's very interesting, and I'm glad Angela brought this up because I have like a a question. I'm not sure how to word, but I've talked in previous episodes about I was attracted to acting and performing and arts and I held back. I like kind of like pushed that side of me down because I had had a taste of what bullying was like. And I had a bully like in elementary it started and I was like I don't really want to be bullied. And for some reason, I'm sure somebody I respected said something that was like planted a seed in my brain that was completely unfounded. But it was that if you go into drama, you're going to continue to be bullied. Like you're in mm. a different group now and this is going to happen to you. So I said, okay, I'm not going to be performing. I'm not going to do whatever. I did band in grade seven and then I quit. And then I always had this view that held me back from actually expressing the creative side of me that was dying to be expressed. And I was yeah. curious, did what your perspective was. Yeah. Like, like did people... Did going into drama mean getting bullied in grade seven in exactly. Bray Buff? Uh, I yeah. mean, yeah, I guess. I mean, Bray Buff was a pretty jockey high school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the drama club was the drama club. <laughs> but yeah. but what's funny about and and this is what you know what's funny about when you move up in in sort of the the education system and you go to like high school and then university and you just um, you streamline your likes and dislikes and your friends, right? So like once you yeah once you get into drama like your first year of drama everybody's like do i like this and and everybody's sort of clicking but then you build mm -hmm. up this like friend group or you build up this support system and it turns into much more into west side story right like you you feel yeah. like now that you've got a gang of drama kids you're not <laughs> afraid of the jocks anymore you know yeah. so i think that that was by the time we got to grade nine even though this was totally inaccurate i probably like i felt like we ruled the school in a weird mm -hmm. way, like the drama kids, yeah. because those were who I saw. I don't think I went to a football game ever at Bray Buff. So I'm sure at the football game, though, like those those players were like, we rule this place. But yeah, when you when you put the two factions together, I think, yeah, <laughs> there's there would definitely be some bullying. And uh, but yeah, I don't know if that was my takeaway from it. Like, I, I do remember mm -hmm. getting bullied quite a bit at Bray Buff. But not to throw my brother under the bus. But yeah, but I remember being bullied because I was my 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 brother's younger brother. So yeah, like I I remember friends of his putting me in lockers in grade seven. But yeah, but it wasn't. I don't think it was because I was a drama kid. I think it was just because I was Matt's Matt's little brother. That's crazy. And then I'm assuming you continued with drama into high school. I did. I did. Yeah. Almost. Um. I was. So I went to Bishop Carroll. Uh, and it was really unsettling because um, almost none of my friends went to Bishop Carroll. Oh. They all went to St. Francis or, or um, I can't remember the other one, St. Mary's, I think. So yeah, I, I kind of went alone and it was, it was, um, it was humbling because I was sort mm -hmm. of, yeah, leaving Bray Buff with a big group of friends and then, yeah, going to high school and having none, like basically no friends. But that was also kind of the function of the high school was that it, it didn't have like classes so it didn't have like a homeroom where you mm -hmm. like built up friend groups it was yeah so it was kind of a a weird start but i think it did a lot to 
to humble me coming out of yeah grade nine drama club whatever king of the school i really don't want to say that i was the king of the school um but that, but but like i because i definitely wasn't but but like i needed some humbling when i came to high school i realized i wasn't as good at the things i thought i was good at and i met people who were just amazing in mm -hmm. in drama and otherwise like i i met some of my some of which are, are my close friends still who are like brilliant in music and in writing and and yeah and they didn't go into theater um despite being far better at it than i was at the time i i like how do you uh you say you just kind of it is humbling um there's a chance that that could be demoralizing right or like crushing or just drive you into a different direction but sure. do you think for you as motivating like how did you take that in as a um yeah it was motivating i think it it provided a direction for me it sort of opened up um yeah, I think when I left junior high, I was like, I want to be an actor, capital A, interested mm -hmm. in in like leading roles and 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 a certain amount of hmm, I don't know popularity or prestige to it. And I just realized when I got to high school that I did not want that at all, but that I just wanted to be, I just wanted to make things and create things. I found that I had better tools to create things that weren't acting. Mm -hmm. So that's when I got interested in in more of the technical aspects. And the the writing aspects a little bit of of plays, but yeah, like and that's sort of the gateway I had to design. I wasn't familiar with it as a career yet, but I started doing well. Funnily enough, I started doing lights and sound for uh, improv uh, in high school, uh, which was actually really fun. Um, like you'd have actors on on stage and they'd be improvising scenes, but I'd be supporting them with lights and music. Yeah, so that's sort of where I got into this. Like I felt like I could be very creative with those tools, more creative than others around me if I just focused on that. Uh, so when I left, when I left high school, I had kind of already knew I was interested in, in um, theater, but not in the acting part of it at all, basically. Um, mm -hmm. After that, I was like, what else is out there? And that's when I went and did, did um, I did an apprenticeship at Alberta Theater Projects, oh, where cool. I kind of did everything. I did like marketing and, and play development and stage management and, um, not a lot of design there until the till like my last few months when I was like, oh my God, who are these people? Who are these people designing all of these sets and costumes? Um, the apprenticeship yeah. didn't normally extend to those people. And then, yeah, I got to follow them around for two months and, and it was just the coolest job ever. It was like the perfect marriage of like creative thoughts and ideas and technical mathematical execution. I got to sort of marry my like natural ability with my like, yeah, desire to make things. It's refreshing to hear that i would say that it's not common i don't know if you would agree with this but it's not very common to have that much clarity in high school of what you are going to be passionate about what you are passionate about i'm still <laughs> 10 years after university trying to figure out what it is that i'm passionate about do you feel that passion still on a daily basis well no no i'm gonna say no on a daily basis, no. Okay. But on a project basis, yes. Okay. I think it's yeah. I think a hard thing about um, growing up in our generation was was the the career aspect, and you're that you're basically picking one, and you're picking one, and the yeah. sooner you pick it, the more successful mm -hmm. you'll be, and the more money you'll save, and the more you know the 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 better those connections will be, or the building blocks you create will be, and so yeah, I felt pressure to pick something, lock it in and run for it for the rest of my life <laughs> um and i yeah i definitely have regrets about that i have regrets that i i didn't experiment around with more around about skills and potential careers that being said mm -hmm. like i found it and loved it 
And for a long time, I loved it every day. Like for a long time, it was really, really, um, I found the right place. I felt home in it. And yeah. then you just kind of like, you grow up a little bit more and you realize like, it's not all about work too. Right. So today, today I feel, I feel good. I feel inspired today. I, I was working right before this on a project and I'm like psyched about it. Mm -hmm. Yesterday I wasn't. Yesterday I was like, I hate this project. Uh, what else can I do for a living? Um, uh, my, my partner and I, we drove by, uh, we drove by um, the street and I saw two guys restoring an old building in downtown Toronto. And they're like literally spraying the dust off of the grout, like between the, the between the bricks, they're spraying the dust. And I'm just like, they look like they're having so much fun. I want to do that. Um, you know, I, I spoke to a tow truck driver who, who towed my, my partner after um, uh, my muffler blew on, on the car. And he was like, I love my job. I get to, you know, help people and rescue people on their whole, on these like horrible days. And I get to bring some, mm -hmm. some joy back to them. And I'm like, that's awesome. I wish I loved my job that much. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it ebbs and flows. It really ebbs and flows. Like I, I do love what I do. And there's moments on every project that I'm like, oh, I have the best job in the world. I get to like imagine things and then see them. And I get to watch people enjoy them and watch people use them. And, and it's, uh, yeah, it can be really, really rewarding, but like any artistic field, it, it comes with like blockages, uh, it comes with like emotions that make it very difficult to do the task. Uh, sometimes the task is impossible. So yeah, uh, daily, no, I don't feel that passion daily, but I, I do still have it. That's, That's cool. such a good, such a good perspective. Yeah. Like even these jobs that sound magical i mean any job has its has its days and, and you, that that's really but the work that you do is beautiful by the way like oh, I, i'm inspired just looking i was looking at your portfolio on your website and i just kept scrolling and it's like how many projects have you done because i was already amazed after the first three or four and then the list just kept going and uh and i guess i, I would just transition into a question about this um theater design uh yeah. because I think it's very interesting that you say even doing the apprenticeship, it wasn't obvious that this was a thing until near the end of it, because it is comforting to me that, yeah, I I never thought of this as an area you could go into uh, that that was its own thing. Like in, in high school, we had like props, we had set design, but it was nothing like what I see from your portfolio that you're creating. So uh, is is it? Is, is this open to people everywhere? Like, how, how do people find out about these uh, these paths that yeah, are available? Yeah, I, I mean, it's definitely open. Uh, I mean, during the, the pandemic, I think theater schools had a really hard time. Uh, but the, the, the programs do exist. Um, so I did, a, I did a Bachelor of Fine Arts specializing in theater design. It was a division of the drama program at the U of A in Edmonton. And uh, it was focused only on design. So okay. I didn't take any, I didn't get any electives. I wasn't allowed to take any other classes that weren't theater design. It was a, a conservatory program. And you, uh, you kind of audition to get in. You audition with a portfolio of like, this is what I can draw. This is how I think and, and that kind of thing. Wow. But there are programs that you can just take, you can take courses of. Like other universities have technical programs where you can learn a little bit about the technical side and the design side. Um, some of them have performing programs, but also streamlines that you can go into for design. Because I knew I wanted design, I went to the U of A, and that was a very focused program. Um, I also, I had some mentors that went there. So their reference letters were very helpful to getting in there. But it's, they're usually small programs. I mean, it's a very small field. There are only about 280 lighting, or not lighting designers, uh, like 280 theater designers, like in 
Canada. Oh, we're, like there are there are more that used to do it, or more that do like occasional shows now and then. But working theater designers, the numbers are around three hundred, and since the pandemic, that's even way lower. So mm-hmm. you can imagine like a university program of theater designers being very small. It's it's like two three people a year. Um, oh, wow. So uh, it was tough to get into, but like the skills and the and the the programs are there's actually lots of them, and there's access to learn about it from a number of different locations. Did you feel you have support going into that, especially uh, not? Such, I don't know. I would say it's an unconventional job description. That did, did you ever doubt it? Like, is this going to be, I don't know, a stable income? Is going to be a thing that I can provide for yeah. for myself going forward, or was it pretty? Smooth sailing. You knew this was a thing and go for it. Oh, yeah. De- I mean, definitely not smooth sailing. I, but to be fair, I doubted it more than almost everybody who supported me. Dra- my like drama teachers and, and my parents were very, very supportive. All my teachers were very supportive of, of me and going into this field. I was the one that was like, uh, no, I don't think it's going to work out. I was like, I was applying to get my EMR to become a paramedic uh, right oh. out of high school. And my drama teacher was like sending me stuff, like sending me the application for the apprenticeship program at Alberta Theatre Projects, being like, hey, just take like nine months. Don't decide to take this yeah. program. He was, yeah, he was quite, I don't want to say aggressive with it, um, <laughs> but he was, yeah, he was, he was very um, supportive of, of me going for it. And I'm really glad I, I'm really glad I did. I think I would have, well, I don't want to say I would have been a terrible paramedic. Um, I think I just wouldn't <laughs> have become a paramedic. So, but that was, uh, but yeah, once I sort of started on the path, it, it, it got easier and, and, and easier to know I was on the right path. That's amazing. What a, what a great teacher to, to see that much and push that much. Like mm-hmm. what movies are made of. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it was wild. It was definitely wild. So after U of A, you, did you move to Toronto then? Uh, it was a while. It took a while for me to move to Toronto. Um, okay. But yeah, I moved, I moved to Edmonton for U, for, for U of A. Uh, and I spent, I think, about six, well, four years of the program. And I think I stayed for three more years after and worked, worked there. It's, pretty good, it's a pretty good scene in Edmonton, especially if you're starting out. The, the Edmonton Fringe there is huge. So there's lots and lots huh. and lots of theater happening. And then I took a I took a show with a good with a good friend of mine. We hadn't really worked together much, but we went to school at the U of A at the same time. And he sent me a script that was uh, yeah he was he was really pushy with it. He was like, "You got to read the script. We got to do this show together. It'll be in Toronto." And it had no money, no budget. Um, I would basically have been doing it for free. And I was I was doing a, a big opera at the time in Edmonton, and I was like, "No, sorry, can't read it." I'll try it. Like, let's, well, let's find something else to do another time. And he kept pushing me on it actually. And then I finally read it and I was like, Oh, you can't do this show with anybody else. I'll be so upset if you do this show with anybody else. <laughs> so yeah, I did that show. Oh. I flew out to, uh, I flew out to Toronto on my own, on my own dime to do the show. And it was, it went really, really well. It went really well. And it, and it, ex- it sort of exploded and allowed for that show to turn into a, a remount and a lot of people saw it, and then it gave me a little bit of clout to to be able to uh, get some more work in Toronto, which was pretty weird. It was pretty weird for Toronto to be bringing like designers, a designer from Edmonton, to come and do it. But it, um, I had this this show and this great advocate and colleague Mitch who who directed the show. So I started coming out to Toronto to do shows and flying back and forth. Oh, and I and I did that oh, for God. about two three years. Yeah, I did that for about two years before I moved here. 
And then wow. once I moved to Toronto, I became like, then bigger theaters in Western Canada were like, oh, you're in Toronto now. Now you're worth <laughs> to like come back and do the bigger shows here. Really? Yeah. Um, so it was a weird dynamic, but, uh, but yeah, I've been, I've been living in Toronto now since 2000, I want to say 2014, 2015, maybe. And, and working not exclusively here, but, uh, my last few years have been mostly here, which is good. I'm, I, I like the less traveling now, but I'm a little older. I, uh, I recently learned about Edmonton as a great place for fine arts, uh, because my, I have a cousin, amazing cousin that. She's a drama teacher. She uh, teaches drama in high school. And she went to, she grew up in Edmonton. She went to school in Edmonton and university in Edmonton. And I've never heard one bad thing come out of her mouth about the drama scene in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. And then recently, I had this urge to take improv lessons. Yeah. So just for fun. And this was during the pandemic. So I'm like, it probably will be online, but and a waste of time, but I'm going to do it anyways. So I reached out to her and I said, where's like the best place to do improv, to learn improv? Yeah. And she said, it has, it's in Edmonton. And oh, here's yeah. the school. Rapid Fire Theater, for sure. Rapid Fire Theater is the one that she suggested. Yeah. So yeah. she sent me to Rapid Fire. I signed up. Absolutely loved it. It's yeah. like, I can't imagine, because I loved it online, and that's nothing close to what it would be like in person. Yeah, I think my head would have exploded in joy if I had done it in person and moved, like drove to Edmonton once a week to do this lesson. But that's kind of where I realized how good Edmonton was in the drama scene. And yeah. I just keep hearing it. So, yeah, that's very cool. It's a it's a big yeah, it's a really big scene there. Like, um, I mean, they have improv here in Toronto and I'm sure it's big. I, I don't I don't travel in those in that circle a lot anymore but in edmonton there were a lot of people that that sort of crossed in that pads um crossed pads with improv and and theater and uh yeah i mean there's big stars that work out of edmonton or no i don't say they worked out of edmonton but it was kind of like they got their start there like nathan fillion was a member of rapid fire i'm pretty sure and he goes back cool. and like goes in their shows for fun like yeah. every time he goes back there i think his i think he has a mom who lives near edmonton or something like that so he comes back and visits and but yeah, a lot of my colleagues who live here now got their start there, and I like built costumes for them for some of their big shows. Like um, two fantastic improv artists, Jamie Cavanaugh and Richard Lamb, they were doing this improv show down in Chicago, and they were like, "Can you make us gold togas?" And they were, what? and and they were like, "Yeah, it'll be really easy, just like gold togas." And I was like, "No, if I'm going to make you a toga, it's going to be like a real." greek toga it's going to be epic it's going to be gold lame and it, it was and i spent a long time on them and i sent them to them and they were like this is way more than we thought you would do <laughs> but uh yeah anyway um great great improv scene there and the theater scene because of the fringe is really dynamic mm -hmm. and bold and and brave which is why yeah i really liked it there i really liked working there uh, i only really needed to leave edmonton for uh quantity not quality you know there's there's lots of theater in edmonton but uh, there's also like because of the, the u of a there which is one of the best schools or it was at the time it might still be lots of designers were coming out there so there wasn't enough work for all of us to share there and, right. and there wasn't enough room to grow like unless you became a staple at the citadel theater which is like 
you know, the bit, I mean, it's the biggest theater there um, in Alberta. So it's, yeah, it's kind of like Stratford of Alberta, but unless you got in there, it was hard to make a, like a full living. It was, it, but coming out here, there's just, there's more quantity, but the quality's yeah. just as good there. When you do lighting for improv, because you said you started that even in high school, right? Like, yeah. is that, are you part of the comedy? Like, are you trying to make jokes with the? Oh yeah, try to be, <laughs> try to be. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. I have, I have fond memories of, it was, it's a little easier in sound because mm -hmm. lighting, you're, you're doing what I call a little bit more zone defense. Like if you want to, if somebody runs over there, you want to be ready to catch them so that the audience doesn't lose them. And so we get to see all the funny things that happen between A and B. But uh. for, for the sound part of it, like I always had a gunshot and Celine Dion <laughs> queued up at all times. So like literally if somebody turned out to the audience, and started like an emotional moment, like they're going to start going into a song, just like, boom, piano medley, ready. Um, and if somebody was like, oh, shit, I don't know how to end this scene, like, and they pull out a gun, you're just queued up with a gunshot yeah. and a blackout. You're just like, <laughs> <laughs> so amazing. yeah, I, that was That's the kind so of stuff that that uh, was was what I was bringing to the table, you know, pop culture also, like that's a really easy way to bring mm -hmm. something in. You can also make initial offerings too. Like, yeah, I mean, you, it's funny because you don't see this on like whose line is it anyway kind of things, but like, it's remarkable mm -hmm. if you just bring up a spotlight in a dark theater and let people walk into it, like it changes the mood of, of what they're going to do, right? Like two people yeah. aren't going to walk into a spotlight and do a book scene it's more going to be like somebody walks in to make a declaration, make a speech. Like you can kind of make those offerings mm -hmm. on how the scene kind of starts, which is kind of fun. It's a, it's been a long time since I've thought about any of this, actually, any of the improv <laughs> stuff. Uh, but I had a lot of fun. So interesting. In general, I guess it, yeah, I, I think is you don't think of the backstage things that are going on, even at a comedy show as being part of the, what makes it funny in that yeah. very specific example can you tell us what is immersive theater yeah yeah sure sure so i take an approach so immersive is a is obviously a, a word that's much more common now than it was about 10 years ago um there's lots of immersive art that you can enjoy theater is inherently immersive because you're there with it and it's happening live in front of you so my company that i do a lot of my work with outside the march specializes in isolating what makes a production or a show immersive and ramping that up and dialing that in. So it, it actually changes definition in some ways from project to project. As a, as a designer of those shows, I, I tend to focus my efforts when I'm trying to make something more immersive, either bringing the audience into it earlier or deeper throughout the show. So like it might mean that their experience of the show starts as soon as they get there, it might mean as soon as they're, they buy their ticket, the way they receive their ticket might be a part of the show already, but definitely that there's something that stays with them after the show is over. Uh, it's not as, well, yeah, in theater we say like Brechtian, like it's not as Brechtian as that there's like a hard line and you walk in and there's the show and then you hit the hard line on your way out and you're like, oh, that was a cool show. Uh, blurring the line between what's, uh, what happens before and what happens afterwards is very interesting to me. I also just like to put people in the action. I find that, that the audience can make a beautiful composition uh, on stage with the, with the action. And I love people's, how people's reactions feed off of each other. So audience seeing audience can really have a, um, a magnification effect mm -hmm. on whatever 
emotion you're trying to cause them to feel like laugh. Like, I mean, I mean, that's the, the best example of that is uh, canned laughter in sitcoms, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. having a studio audience or yeah, having a soundbite of people laughing helps you enjoy it more, helps you, you know, instead of starting at zero, you're starting at 15%, you're already warmed up. So yeah, taking that approach to theater, uh, bringing people into it really also just helps relate the themes that you want back to them. You know, recently we did a, uh, I did a production of Into the Woods in Sudbury that was all about the a climate disaster and about climate change and, and people are taking refuge in a facility amidst a, a, a coming hurricane. Uh, and while they're there, they basically put on an impromptu retelling of Into the Woods as like people trying to escape this disaster and deal with their trauma of that event. And that was the case for the audience. The audience arrived and, and uh, we're hoping to do the show in Toronto. But the idea was that they arrive, they come down a hallway and they're taking refuge. There are signs, there are cots with blankets, that kind yeah. of thing. So those are, that's an example of like, uh, you know, immersive seating that even just like okay. makes people feel like they're there in the moment mm -hmm. with the with the performers oh that's cool that sounds amazing are you, are you often given a lot of creative freedom i guess when i don't know who your client is is it is it, is it the director of the play yeah so the, the client is usually the theater company if they're an established company like a factory theater or the citadel theater or stratford and i'm usually hired by a producer uh, or a production manager but the uh the person who usually asks for me is the director so okay. uh, the, most directors have designers they like to work with that they have mm -hmm. a shorthand with. And it's not usually one director. Like I, I have one director I do a lot of my work with. I would say probably close to 50% of my work with because um, he's a really busy guy. But I, but I work with dozens of other directors off and on. So depending on the director, yeah, I have lots of creative freedom. I generally work with directors who, who, who trust me to figure it out and uh, want to you know hear what I can bring to the table that they haven't thought of. Uh, I don't usually work with directors who are like, "This is what I want. Make it look pretty." I go, yeah. eh, there's lots of other people that'll do that for you." Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, so I usually get lots of creative freedom, and 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 I like that. I I like to problem solve and and figure it out and struggle through it, and then and then come with a plan. I like to come back yeah. to my director with a plan that helps them and supports their their work but still tells a very unique like uh version of what i can bring to the table that makes sense so if you got to choose you'd prefer someone to just hand you a script and say do something with this make it awesome yeah uh, yeah i guess now well now that you said that i was like i was imagining if a director said like handed me a script and said make it awesome i'd be like oh okay so we're not going to work together at all on this. So yeah, I guess I'm I guess I'm hard to please. Um, but yeah, the I think uh, yeah, okay, I can think of an example where that kind of happened. I mean, uh, I loved working with this director, but initially, when he first reached out to me, he we were doing Don Giovanni, and um, and the first thing he said to me was like, yeah, okay, Don Giovanni. When like what haven't I done with Don Giovanni? He was like, let's do it in the 60s. Yeah, I've never done a Don Giovanni in the 60s before. Um, let's do that. And that, that level of like, I don't know, creative decision making felt like mm -hmm. flaccid to me, <laughs> like, right. uh, like lacking conviction in that. Like, but that happens sometimes in, in opera because opera directors will direct a piece many, many times. And, and it's even worse with singers. Like opera singers will perform, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of, of 
the same opera, the same music, but different locations and different theater companies. Anyway, when he said that to me, I was like, oh, that's it. That's our creative collaboration. Do it in the 60s. Um, That sort of like, yeah, transposition just for the sake of making it feel different than the last time you did it. Uh, That being said, I loved working with that director and we did an awesome Don Giovanni. It was super cool. And it did take place in the 60s. (laughs) But yeah. So do you ever do you ever run into situations where you want to go one direction, the director wants to go another, and one of you has to concede, I guess, or there's a you're yeah. both kind of stubborn in the direction that you want to go, and what is your decision making process in that in that case, I guess? Yeah, I think it's definitely different for everybody. Uh, the, I mean, the 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 schooling of the you know design is as a as a collaborator of a director but but on a level slightly lower so Mm -hmm. if you were to put the hierarchy there you would be slightly lower so where the director wants to go is where you go is sort of the school of thought yeah i don't really follow that uh, only because i feel like if you are going to be there there everybody below you's got to be with you so it's your job if you're Mm -hmm. up there to convince everybody that that's the direction it should go uh not that not that you we just have to do it because you're up there so uh and similarly because i have a tree of people that i work with that i also have to motivate to go that direction Mm. fabricators and other designers and and uh technicians and you know i have to motivate them to go the way i i think the show should go so so when i come come to that sort of disagreement i try to not find a compromise I know that sounds weird, mm-hmm. but I try to not be like, well, let's do half of what you want and half of what I want, because then we'll get yeah. something crappy and muddy in the middle. I try to understand why they want to go that way and what's motivating them there. And I express what's doing that for me. And uh, 99 out of 100 times, there will be a lot of commonality in that. So I try not to also bring really like rigid structure to that first meeting, but that first meeting that I have mm-hmm. with the director is to figure out like, my first question is like, why do you want to do this play? Because the theater might have its own reasons for wanting to do the play, right? They might want to do Elf because they think Elf will make a lot of money mm-hmm. and it probably will. Um, yeah. But but why a director wants to do Elf, what's their in to the show will be something that I can resonate with and I can use artistically. So I'll have right. my own in to that project that I want them to know as well. So yeah, it usually ends up that we pick a direction. So, um, you know, Mitch and I, who work together quite a bit at Outside the March, we might come with two different visions and then it'll just find a direction that will go together. And that's when it's the most successful. And it sounds like you and Mitch have a lot of like confidence in each other and a lot of trust to know that you guys are going to make the right decision together. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, it comes with a lot of practice. Like we, you know, we... This year, I will do. I will actually do my hundredth show this year, oh my um, goodness. which is kind of cool. Uh, I haven't decided which show is going to be my hundredth year. There's a bit of a flexibility <laughs> into like, was yeah. that really a show? Was that a remount? So, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, I'm going to do my hundredth show this season. So that's kind of cool. I'm, I'm. I think oh, I've cool. done. I think I've done twenty, twenty with Mitch, uh, and it's been like twelve years since we first worked together. So yeah, it's, there's definitely a shorthand. There's definitely like, oh, I can tell this is really important to him. I'm not going to fight him on that. I'm going to trust him. He knows what he's doing with that and vice versa. There's things like, I'm going to do this. He'll be fine. It'll work out. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's a, there's a lot of trust, but you have to build it, build it over a long Mm -hmm. period of time. 
There's a question that you you mentioned something about like when you said making Elf because it'll do well, we'll make a lot of money. When you do shows and when the directors and um, companies that you work with do shows, is it often? I've always imagined it as we don't care about the money. We're gonna do something great, something that we love, and whatever happens, whether they love it or not, that's up to them. We're gonna do something we love. That's kind of like the the fairy tale rainbow vision of theater that I have in my head. Is it sure. like that, or do you do you try to maintain that when you when you create? I mean, I guess it depends on who you ask, because uh, um, I think part of one of the luxuries of my job is that I I don't my my payment, my remuneration for doing my job is in no way tied to the box office. Usually, okay. Occasionally, there will be if I'm doing a sort of profit share kind of thing, but it's pretty hmm. rare. Normally, I get paid for time and services. So, gotcha. uh, so yeah, I, I have the luxury of being like, no, I'm going to design the show the way I think it should be designed and not thinking like, oh man, I'm going to design it this way. Cause I think we'll make more money this way. Um, mm-hmm. so that's a luxury that I have. Um, but I also don't really get to pick the shows. So I get, I mean, I get to pick what I say yes to, but I, you know, I say yes way more often than I say no. Cause I, mm-hmm. you know. I'm excited to work and we all have bills to pay, but, uh, but I, I don't envy the, the people who, who program because it's difficult, I think, to pick shows that you know will make money, but also shows that have integrity and things that your audience needs to see versus things that your audience wants to see, because it's not always the same. You know, an example of uh, when I was at Alberta Theater Projects, for example, this, this was sort of the first time this actually, uh, I was aware of this. They did Peter Pan that year. It was amazing. It was a beautiful production of Peter Pan. And I'm sure mm-hmm. it sold out crazy well. And that was their holiday show. So that's like their big moneymaker. Um, and these are all non-for-profit theaters, I will also say. Mm-hmm. But they still have to make their money back. So they did yeah. uh, Peter Pan. And then they did another show called The Goat. Uh, the Goat or Who is Sylvia? It's a, it's a very famous play by Edward Albee. And it's very controversial. People walk out of the show every time the show is done. In every city it's been done in, people walk out because it's just, it's, it's not a holiday show. But it's a, a, sh- it's a show with important messages and themes. And, and mm-hmm. uh, it's a designed, I think, to, to change the way you think. And mm-hmm. that's also something that theater and art and, has to do. So it wouldn't make financial sense, I would think, to do that show as a theater company. But that's right. not the only thing they have to consider. So mm-hmm. I think it's so pretty amazing when companies companies do that but i think they if they did a whole season of you know teachable moment shows they would lose people right you might alienate people by trying to you know teach them Mm -hmm. something every time they came to see the theater (laughs) it is meant to be entertaining it is meant to to be transformative and 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 take people out of their daily lives and and give them relief at times but it also has to give them Mm -hmm. yeah it has to give them like hopes and and gives them education also so uh yeah, I don't, I don't envy that, that job. I think it'd be very challenging. Well, good answer. It, so there's a balance, I guess, always. Everything yeah. in moderation, as they yeah. say. And not to say that a show can't do both, right? Like, I, I mean, I'm sure, like, Elf can do both. And I don't mean to, like, <laughs> poop, poop on Elf by any means. <laughs> um, I would love to design Elf, actually. It'd be super fun. And I need to fill my mm-hmm. own season with stuff like that. Like, if I did really yeah. dark, moody gruesome shows every all all year i would be miserable 
So mm. I I need to fill my my own season with with light with light and fun. Yeah. I also like the the highlighting of the different roles, like um, having having the different interests balanced through different roles. So as an artist who wants to bring a vision together and to make something beautiful and meaningful, I don't know. Um, it's it's you have those you have that being put into the show and then you have the people whose concern is is this going to be profitable so that we can keep making this or is this going to at least you know recover its cost so that we can keep doing this and uh, sometimes i think it helps to have those like those roles even if the person themselves cares about everything or cares about one thing more than the other that your reason for being here is to bring this in so that the team can benefit from that perspective yeah, I mean, it's they say it's a you know a collaborative art form, and it definitely, definitely is. But it's strange because we actually collaborate all on very different things. Like it would not be efficient or effective if we all collaborated on the set design. So it's it'd be much better if I could do the, my part and do the set design, and somebody else directs it, and somebody else does the development, and and somebody else stage manages, and and you know. Uh, and all of us collaborating on the same vision of like, what's the reason why we're doing this show? That's where it becomes effectively collaborating as opposed to, uh, yeah, <laughs> I guess, uh, yeah, us, us all trying to fundraise, you know, that might not mm -hmm. be the best way right. to, to fundraise <laughs> a show. Uh, there are people much better to do it than, than I am, for sure. I think if I was in your shoes, I would imagine that my day would consist a lot of me thinking, what will people think of this design? Mm. Like, will people will people love this design? Instead of what I think I should be thinking about is, do I love this design? Yeah, yeah. That's a. I mean, and that's I, a big. That's a big thing. I heard something recently. It was probably a TikTok or something. It was like a parenting hack that <laughs> that I saw, and it really it really resonated with me. It was like, yeah, it's like a woman. She was like, oh, so my 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 daughter just brought me a drawing. And I wanted to tell her how great it was. And I resisted telling her how great it was. And it was so hard because I could tell that's what she wanted. But instead, I, I was like, what do you like about it? And I was like, oh, I wish my parents did that more with me. Hmm. So that I was like, hmm. oh, I made a thing. I like this. And I don't like this. I, you know, and it forced me to analyze it. Yeah. Cause that is what I do now. Like I, I do that every day with everything I do. I have to go, what do I like about it? What's wrong? What's right? Do another one. Yeah. But so much of what I do is actually like, you know, like, what do you think? What do you think? Is it good? Yeah. Do you like it? Yeah. And I wish I didn't need that so much, but I think artistically it is important that my collaborators, you know, give me those, those, that little bit of validation so that I know I'm yeah. on the right path. Like it, it has a function. But like in my core, I also want it, right? Like I want, mm -hmm. um, it achieves a more appreciation by it being appreciated by others, not just, just by me. So yeah, what you're speaking of is speaking to is a very specific challenge. I think all artists have, but yeah, it maybe can be remedied by this parenting hack I saw on TikTok once. <laughs> I was going to say, what a good lesson. I hope good that something. video goes viral and everybody sees it because yeah, yeah I do wish like people in our generation I wish that that would have happened more because yeah. I see it all the time, even in myself. Yeah, totally. I, I think it's interesting. The idea though, that like as an, as an artist, they think that there's a lot as a, as a human being, <laughs> especially as an artist, they think it's very rewarding to connect. And so uh -huh. when you make something that you love, 
is one thing that's great but then when somebody else loves it i think that extra bonus of connection is undeniable and i think that there's nothing wrong with it that's what makes us like come together uh it's maybe maybe it's just you're not it's not the healthiest to be seeking that regardless of if you love it or not to just Mm -hmm. be looking for Mm -hmm. that connection maybe it's emptier if it's not something that you loved first of all it's just something that you created for somebody else totally totally i mean that's why i think like every time i do a show i try to find my in to it like what's gonna make this show just mine like i i could have you know gone on google images found something cool turned it into a set design but somebody else could have also done that right like somebody else could have found that same image and read that same show at that same time and was like yeah and ended up with an exact almost replica of the design so i try to think what what can i only bring to it yeah or at least what what do i resonate with the most and that helps it helps it doesn't always work but it helps get you started usually maybe that's a lot more pressure (laughs) it's like now i have to be not just creating a thing but making it something that is this level higher more meaningful to me i mean it definitely does like it adds more it adds more pressure for sure but it it also adds investment uh like good and bad so mm-hmm. when i when i'm designing a show and it's going well i allow myself to be excited that it's going well uh when it gets good reviews i'm excited that it gets good reviews cuz i'm invested in it in that way mm-hmm. the, the the other side of that is of course that it you know when it's not going well you're like it it hurts more you know yeah. it, it's not something i'm just like ah oh, well that show i did didn't work out like mm-hmm. that that's not something i say <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm hurt by the fact that it didn't work out or that the design didn't turn out well, or it's not being, it's not working or, or it goes over budget. You know, that's something I hate it when my shows go over budget. And sometimes it has nothing to do with me. It's just something that like happened, costs increased Mm -hmm. or, or some, something Mm -hmm. happened or something needed to change. But like, I still, like, it sucks when it goes over budget because it's like, oh, I tried so hard to make it not. It's things I've never thought about. And just like, if I step outside to 3000 feet, (laughs) the thing you know like um i don't know what you call this but the things you don't realize are happening in the background at a play when i go to a play i'm not thinking about like ooh, did he time the spotlight right was the was that set set perfectly like i'm not thinking about those things because if it's seamless i just love the play yeah and i nobody i don't i shouldn't say nobody there are i'm sure the people that are well um first in theater that are respecting all of those art forms sure but you were talking about the improv and like the gunshot timing the gunshot properly or the celine dion coming on perfect timing (laughs) if that were to happen in a play i wouldn't even realize it like it would just it would make the the performance that much better but i wouldn't i wouldn't realize and i i'm gonna use an example we have a uh, in our vehicle the kids in the back can watch a movie, but it yeah. plays the sound everywhere. Okay. So now, every time the kids are watching a movie in the car, I'm only listening to it. Yeah. I don't get to watch myself and become immersed in the movie. I'm only hearing the soundtrack yeah. and the sound editing. And now I've gotten this like weird new respect for filmmakers because I'm still immersed like Frozen 2. I was like involved in frozen too, not watching where i was driving yeah but i couldn't see anything yeah and i think it's so cool when that happens and it's and i'm sure that you make that happen 
on most of your things where it's just you're immersed in this environment and you're completely involved in what's happening and when that's seamless like that it's it's so cool and i'm trying to pay respect to you for doing that and not always being recognized for it yeah it's i mean it's it's good that people are i think it's good to make people aware of it because there's there's so many more i mean there's 10 times as many people working around a performer yeah to make that performer succeed uh, not to take any power away from them or any any uh kudos but it's uh yeah there's so much that happens and even even me like i, I mean in reviews like I, i'll get a good review for the set design but like i didn't paint it i didn't build it i didn't engineer it mm-hmm. i didn't physically put it together hang it in the space Mm-hmm. there's so many people that i depend on to to make my work look good and i get i get more of the kudos than i deserve uh so i think it's it's great to talk about it all of those people because it's a it's a it's a field uh way bigger than mine you know there are like you know i said like 300 designers in the country there's thousands and thousands of technicians and and administrative staff in in theaters and in addition to all of the the many actors and directors and um, musicians too also like i mean yeah like uh, i used to listen to i used to listen to movies uh while i was working because they're a great way of knowing how long you've been working on something so like <laughs> if you know you're doing a 12-hour day in the studio and you're like okay i gotta i gotta start this project and finish this project in the next 12 hours yeah put on the three lord of the rings extended editions that is 12 hours and you know, by the time you finish fellowship, you got to be at least a third of the way done or you got to oh, pick up the pace. Amazing. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I used to, I used to mm-hmm. like listen to movies because if I watched it, I would get too distracted, but movies yeah. that I know really well to just help time, time my <laughs> workload better. You can't do that with the office or, or friends or Seinfeld or whatever. Cause it just goes on forever yeah. anyway. So yeah, I hear you about the listening to movies. I used to listen to Lion King a lot very powerful and emotional music that can motivate mm-hmm. you to just get your shit done <laughs> that's frozen too for me like frozen two the, for you some Great. of the music in frozen two <laughs> is so yeah. motivating for me. Mm-hmm. it's like <laughs> last night i got choked up listening to one of the songs because it's so like that's how powerful it is and i think if you're watching the movie you don't realize it as much but yeah. if you're only listening you're you're relying on less senses i guess to yeah to be involved hmm. that's so cool i love the idea of timing with the movies because it's so much less stressful than looking at a clock <laughs> like yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, totally. it's like <laughs> and dramatic i should add but <laughs> definitely more fun yeah. um we we're talking about this also with my husband yesterday and he mentioned he called it invisible art this this like behind the scenes work that it takes to make these things happen and i I definitely echo the fact that like people should be getting more recognition for these these amazing contributions that they're making and at the same time it's not just about recognition i think as a viewer right we enjoy things so much more when we see all the pieces come together like i Mm -hmm. i've i've heard a similar thing described for sports like i'm not as really a sports fan but uh i think it was explained to me that it's because you're seeing it as like a big picture thing like did they get a goal or not like that's it Mm -hmm. but when you can really appreciate it is when you see the small moments when these two people like 
fought something off and then one of them managed to get away and and those are the moments that make it interesting i think it's the same for any these kinds of arm forms movies or theater that if you can notice the timing of a cue right or like the specific yeah. choice of making a light a certain way then you, you're appreciating so much more like the experience got to be so much richer i wonder like is that like the immersive theater kind of puts more of a focus on on all of that that might be more easily missed in a conventional setting i mean in some ways i uh i think one aspect of a lot of the work i've done in the last 10 years specifically has been like site-specific work so theater not taking place in theaters but in like warehouses or classrooms or or um yeah, uh, outside, like, uh, you know, we've I've done a, a lot of shows like that. And, and one of the side effects of doing that is often you see how it's getting made a little bit more because you're not mm -hmm. creating it inside of a black void uh, with velour drapes that hide everything. You're doing it out in the open. So people see the lights move. People see the, the, the cast run from way in the distance to, to arrive just in time. And it's fun. It's fun for people. It's, uh, it's fun to see how the magic is done in some ways it's the opposite of magic i also just did like a magic show last year and working with a bunch of magicians it's the opposite and they're they they come from a very different school of thought where it's like if you see how it's made it's terrible you cannot yeah. like above all else you cannot see how it is done and in mm. theater sometimes we we're like wow this is really cool this thing that we've made you know what would make it cooler if we <laughs> made people actually see how hard we were working to make this thing work for them and and uh, it it pays off huge in theater sometimes to do that that's really cool a really cool way of opening the veil um i wanted to ask you mentioned you mentioned like searching google photos for inspiration and that's something that you don't do um and it made me wonder what do you do to find inspiration where do you go to find inspiration There's, it's kind of a two-parter and the second sure, question okay. will be you have a team below you that you also have to find a way to inspire mm. so where where does the inspiration come from i guess sure okay i'm gonna qualify i'll qualify two things first first being i okay. definitely look at google images i'm here okay, sweet <laughs> i do have to go to google for answers um especially you know when the local library was not available. I used to love going to the library. I haven't been to a library in like eight years now, which is so sad. Uh, but yeah, I do have to use Google Images sometimes. Inspiration does kind of come from everywhere, though. Mm. Uh, it comes a lot from my surroundings, and I didn't realize this until I lived the first place I lived at in in Toronto. Uh, this is a very small apartment, uh, so I would get out a lot and go for walks and. After about three, four years, I would go for a walk and I could pinpoint like that crack in the sidewalk became a set for this show. And that tree oh, and the oh, shape of that wow. tree appeared in another show. And that balcony on that apartment building over there made it into another show. And it was like, I've used everything around me. Um, I have to move. <laughs> so, wow. it, yeah, stuff like that kind of kind of comes into play. Um, uh, definitely books, definitely the play itself. Uh, that's where the sort of the inspiration comes from mm -hmm. just random sketching also it's not really random like you have a after a while you develop a system of like exploratory drawing um which is where a lot of the ideas come from but also i i will sometimes just sit with like i mean i'm surrounded right now with source material and frankly there's lots of google images here mm -hmm. i'll look at them all absorb them 
put them away for a couple of days, and then I'll come back and I'll like draw the set. And I'll just try to do it with whatever subconsciously stuck. So yeah, that's where a lot of it comes from. I, I like to think that I'm a pretty, pretty um, adept sponge. Uh, so mm-hmm. I can just kind of soak it in over a long period of time and access it when I when I need to. At least that's where I like to think the inspiration comes from. But uh, yes, occasionally, sometimes also Google. <laughs> it's a very cool skill to have, though, just to soak up those, like observing a crack in the sidewalk or a tree or hmm. a balcony. It's very, it's very cool to be able to kind of store that away and then recall yeah. it when you need it. Do you ever get like writer's block? Mm. Oh yeah, def- I mean definitely. Uh, it, it it was an, an acquired skill, to be honest. Like my uh, a game that my dad used to play with my brother and I. Um, my dad used to be a police officer in Calgary, and when we would go out, he would be like, "How many hats are in the room?" Or like, you know, what was the license plate of the white truck that we passed a oh, minute ago? Cool. And yeah, he would just like sort of do these like memory games with us a lot and i didn't realize uh, i attribute a lot of that the sponginess they sort of being able to store that stuff to playing that game and just like flexing that muscle i'm sure i'm rusty at it now but it it used to be good at it when i was a kid and it helps when you have writer's block to be honest it's yeah in in my field we call it white canvas syndrome when you Mm -hmm. stare at a white canvas and you go like what do i do with this thing because it's it's kind of always the same and it's yeah it can be terrifying there's like two things I, I use to to get past that. One of which is is from uh, one of my professors. He uh, his name was David Lovett. And he said, "Never store your paper somewhere precious. You should store it underneath your drafting table, like with your feet on it, or like mm-hmm. crumpled up in the corner, so that when you come to needing it, it's not precious. Like it's got a footprint on it." So that you're like, ah, whatever. And it, it, it takes away some of that fear. I don't, I mean, I don't really do that. Like I don't stand with my feet on it, but I try to think about that. I'm just like, oh, just get it dirty first. Like just smudge it with something. Uh, and sometimes that smudge will turn into a very cool aspect of the, of the design. You know, another method I use is instead of working on a white canvas or a white paper, I use black paper. I do that a lot. I have a black sketchbook basically right here that's got like ideas. I go through about three or four of these a year and I just draw on white on black because for some reason that's less scary. Huh. I also work in theater. So like we often start from darkness, right? So it helps yep. to just draw the essential things you need, like a beam of light. Maybe that's all that moment needs. Next moment. Okay, what does this moment need? You know, instead of trying to fill the page which white canvases, white pages make that hard. You want to fill it. Yeah. It's really, really cool to hear you say that because we interviewed a writer and she said when she walks into chapters, the first thing she wants to do is burn all of the nice, pretty notebooks oh, because yeah. she can't, like, it's intimidating to write in a nice, beautiful notebook. Like she yeah. said, if you want to be a writer, go to the corner store and pick up a shitty notebook yeah, and then start writing in that. Yeah, it's, totally. I laughed when you said that because it's the exact same logic, basically. Yeah, like take the, the... the sketchbooks. I got. I got when I went to design school. I got a beautiful. I still have it. It was given to me by my good friend Oliver. He gave me this beautiful leather sketchbook with beautiful paper. Mm-hmm. 
I have I've sketched exactly two things in it, and I've since ripped those pages out, and it is empty. There's nothing yeah. in it, and it is a beautiful fixture. It's just on the wall. It's just it's just on a shelf, and I never mm, open it. Like... I've used it in a prop, actually. I've used it as a prop in a show more times than I've opened it to draw on it, because it's a beautiful oh, leather wow. cover. But yeah, very intimidating. That is so cool. You asked me another question, too, about uh, people I work with. Yeah, inspiring your team. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the people I, that I work with are, are vary from show to show. It depends on what element I'm designing. But as a, as a set designer, I'll work with uh, carpenters and I'll work with technical directors um, who are kind of like the engineers of our world. And uh, I'll work with painters. I'll work with people skilled in fabrics and skilled in weird materials. Uh, it, it can vary. It can vary from like having no collaborators like that on a team where I design the set, but I also have to go buy it or make it which is rarer now than it used to be. But, uh, but then I'll have a, sometimes I'll have a team of 30, 40 people. So that's why, that's why I put all that effort into the designs and the renderings, like the stuff that you've seen on the, on the website, model boxes mm -hmm. or, or things like that. Because yeah. I have to sort of convince them that it's going to be cool. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's so much easier to, to convince them and excite them when you've, when you've put in that work. Like if I put in all the work of building a model and I bring it to the carpenters. The carpenters go like, he put a lot of effort into this uh, and a yeah. lot of care to try and solve challenges and problems that we might have as builders. Uh, and they follow suit with their care and their efforts. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I just hand them a napkin drawing, I lose their respect instantly. Yeah. In a, in a, yeah, in certain ways. Napkins, also really great. Some of my best ideas have first <laughs> appeared on napkins. But yeah, anyway, the collaborators are are uh are many and I'm indebted to them and, and they're they're often my closest friends also. Mm -hmm. Uh the people who actually work with me to make some of this stuff. I couldn't value them more. I could see that. I could see the need to lead by example, because if I just imagine like a theater designer having a bad day and coming to <laughs> check on how his design is coming along and just like just being miserable and hating it. And everybody else, like, I could probably just see the energy drop in the room and then yeah. that effect that it would have on the, even the performance, like, how drastic that could affect everything. Yeah. So, yeah, I could really appreciate the, the pressure there is to, to lead by example. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I, I don't really know anything about sailing, but like, the captain can't freak out. <laughs> You know, exactly. <laughs> captain can't yeah. freak out. Otherwise, everybody's going to freak out. So, yeah, that's like the most important, I think, aspect of a director, really, is just making sure that they're everybody's like on the same on the same path and, and like motivated to to go. I think if a director comes into the room or or a designer comes into the shop and is like, this thing sucks that we're working on, like, mm -hmm. yeah, it's going to go downhill so fast. Yeah, so even if I did do a design, and it certainly does happen, like I do a design that I'm not super pleased with, it's my favorite design I've ever done when we're working on it, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. if I'm in the shop, I'm like, no, this is, this is going to be awesome, you guys. We're going to make this work. Even if I'm like, you know, yeah. unsure about it. You got to put up That's that, amazing. put up that faux confidence. Wow, look at that! Like, that <laughs> circle back around. all around. <laughs> one, like one thing that makes me think of is this crazy idea of like a a shared vision, and that must be like 
I don't know, like a learned skill to be able to share a vision both for its good and its bad. Because if you, what I was thinking of is what if you have a, like, you've put out this idea of what it's going to look like and it's, you're so proud of it. Like it's going to be amazing. You really, it's like one of your best work. And then to be able to collaborate on that when people have their own viewpoints or maybe they just, they're not exactly doing what you had in mind because mm -hmm. it's a misunderstanding, like being able to share and have that evolve as a group rather than what came from you. Yeah. What do you like? How does, how's that experience been to like transition <laughs> to that? Yeah, I mean it's hard. It's a it's a, it's probably the hardest thing about costume design actually. So because the character that you're sort of creating is a product of more than just the actor, right? It's um you and the director, like uh, the costume designer and the director have like read and the playwright actually have have all sort of decided on who this person is, right? And then we we give all that to a performer who usually starts later right like i i will often start the costume design process before the casting has has occurred so mm -hmm. but then the actor fills this fills this role um, and it's like no this is the person i'm i i think it is i want it to be so it's so there is a compromise there usually but i but ideally again you're not finding a compromise that's a little bit them a little bit you a little bit playwright a little director you're finding something that it all points to so that it can be a little bit stronger. But I've definitely designed costumes where the the actor didn't see it that way at all. Um, and in some cases, the costume was rebuilt. And in some cases, the actor was asked to do it differently. And I think the best case scenario is when everybody's on the same same path with it. But it's but it's it's tricky. And and yeah, I think collaborating actually like it isn't easier. I think it is easier if you have a one vision and you make all the decisions and you just get it done, but it's just like not rewarding at all to do it that way. Right. Like it's, it's not the fun. Is there. There's yeah, there's no motivation. Exactly. Yeah. There's no, there's no desire for me to work that way. Like if that was the way I wanted to work, I think I would just make, like I would make sculptures. I would make large scale scenic sculptures that lived in the woods and nobody ever saw them. It would, you know, <laughs> if I was happy enough with my own art that I could just let it be, I can't imagine who that person is. I'm, I'm much happier with my art when it's been collaborated on and it's, and it's used and it's shared. Mm -hmm. So yeah, but that being said, it can be difficult you, 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 to, to compromise, to collaborate more so. Right. It's like, it's like the, the cost, the cost is the, conflict maybe right or, or the, just the different views and being able to find that that joint vision um but i imagine what is like pays off for that is you have your vision you think it's amazing and then someone else brings in an idea that makes it even better than you thought was possible like Ab that yeah absolutely cool. absolutely yeah it, it it should be more than the sum of its parts Mm -hmm. right like mm -hmm. that's that's the desire anyway is that you put all these pieces together and it turns into something else it's so mm -hmm. cool i have to admit selfishly i'm asking some of these questions because <laughs> i work in a place where it is very this is what we're doing today and you 10 people are going to do this 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 and this mm. and those 10 people go off and by the end of the day they're kind of like oh god is the day over yet yeah but I've had a very like a couple of very rare opportunities to see someone say, "This is what we're doing. Can I get everybody's input? Yeah. What would you like to do? How do you think we should do this?" 
and people at the end of the day are still fired up about what they're doing. Uh-huh. And I wish I could just like pound that into every job out there and say there's a, there's a way to do this where people will stay motivated and they'll love what they're doing instead of just being told what to do and go do it and you can collect yeah. your paycheck at the end. I mean, I think it's a I think it's a comment on on leadership and what leadership actually means. Uh, I I mean yeah. I as far as I'm concerned like a a leader does not have to be a good speaker. They have to be a phenomenal listener. Be, you know, cuz I mean any anybody can have opinions. Like in my field like and yeah, it's it's nobody's job to have like well, okay, it's not an important function of anybody's job in theater to have an opinion. I think because uh, we all right. have opinions, like I'm a set designer and I can have opinion about a sound design, but I'm not informed to have a, an opinion about it that is is worth much. Um, right. But my opinion about other the elements that I'm responsible for are are, are worth quite a quite a bit because I because I, mm-hmm. I know lots about it. Yeah. But I think like some of the skills that that I think I I see in leaders and and by that I I basically mean directors in theater are their ability to to listen to people and and distill when necessary and combine um and also like feed to people's strengths and and keep them motivated and and that kind of thing like yeah yeah telling telling people what to do is i think a very small aspect of of what what a director's job is and and certainly what it's a small aspect of what my job is because ideally they 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 do what they think they should do and that aligns with the vision rather than me telling them what the vision is. If they understand it, they're motivated to go after it on their own. And I provide like a map on how to sort of do that when it comes to actually building a thing. But yeah, I think the, uh, the, the more I do this and the older I get and the more people I work with, the more I recognize the qualities that I like to see in a director and the qualities maybe I don't. And I think yeah. it doesn't mean that there's, there's not a different way of doing it. It's just the one that, I, that motivates me the best, maybe. Mm-hmm. Well said. A big question. Uh, How would you, what comes to mind if you were thinking how you did your first show versus how you will approach your hundredth show? Like the way you take that on, how has it changed over all this time? Oh, wow. That's a good question. That was a big question. So take (laughs) your time with it from any angle. I'm curious what comes to mind. So yeah, what's changed? My first, yeah, my first show i was very yeah i was very obsessed with the requirements of the piece in that i was like yeah i had to make sure that everything that the play told me to do was there and i wanted to make sure that the director had everything that they needed and i yeah i was trying to please everybody with the first design that maybe i ever did and i remember being very arduous uh, i remember it being very difficult and the reason why I think this is such a good question is some of the struggle I was having yesterday with this show, this hundredth show that I'm doing right now, I think might be because I was trying to do that. So uh, oh, that's funny. Epiphany. No kidding. Uh, Epiphanies by Angela. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that being said, I just have way more tools to deal with it now. So like I have more ways of solving problems uh, and my brain, I think, is a little bit more flexible now than it was then so i know that i don't have to solve all of the problems before creating an idea so i probably spent a lot 
more time. Well, okay. I, I spent a lot more time creating my first design than I will creating my hundredth design. Let's put it that way. I will be able to get there faster because I won't have to throw out as many ideas to get there. My first design, I was like, is it, you know, is it this way or is it this way? Okay, it's this way. Okay, is it this or is it this? Or is it this or is it this? You know, like you design it like a hundred times and then you pick the best one. I don't have time for that now to, to design it the wrong way a million times. So hopefully I just do it one or two ways. But I only show the director one now. I also, uh, that is also what I did with my first design is I, I, I showed the director like, here are all the designs of the show that you could have. Pick one and like one, please. Yeah. And and then we like, and it was a long, long process. It was a good process, but it was long. Um, now we don't have that kind of time. It's like, so I go in with a with a design and I say, this is the design you need for your show. So yeah, I guess a little bit more confidence, faux confidence, a little bit more tools to the trade that help you get there quicker, more efficiently, or less painfully. Uh, I think I definitely also feel more, I feel less pressure to impress now than I did then, because I know that I'm not trying to impress the director in a way that like, I'm working with lots of people now who've also worked for a very long time. So they've seen a lot of stuff. So I'm not trying to show them something they've never seen before. Uh, like it, mm. after a hundred shows, like, <laughs> yeah, right. Like yeah. It, it, it can be very filled with pressure. Um, and it still is a little bit. Yeah, we talked about that before about like this idea when you're creating uh, for an amateur like me that you would think, oh, I have to think of something that's never been written before. I have to think of yeah. an idea that if it's even resembles something that already exists, then it's not worth doing. <laughs> like, yeah. So it's comforting to hear that that goes away as you become more, uh, I don't know, professional at this. Yeah, it's it's tricky though. Like I, I just saw like the show I'm working on I made the mistake of accidentally looking up a version. I saw a picture of a version of somebody else's design of that show. And I saw it and I was like, damn it, because they did something yeah. good that I also put in mine and now I can't use it. And it's, it's not, it's not true. Like I can use it. The designs will look very different, but I won't feel, I don't feel like I earned that idea. Now mm -hmm. I feel like I stole it, even though it's not true. You did think of that idea. And then you Googled and it. And then I looked at it. Yeah, I know. But that's not how the history books will read. The history books will see Nick Blade 2023, and they'll see some other designer 2019. Um, but, but no, I, I hear what you're saying. The, uh, the pressure. The pressure to come up with something new is daunting, and, and it's on every show I work, I work on. But like understanding that it's not like you don't need to actually invent a better wheel every show mm -hmm. you can just pick something that you've never done before like that that is true like every single show i design it has to be something i've never done before but sometimes it's something small mm -hmm. and you can actually gain a lot by trying things several times i mean fine artists do this all the time they you know have a phase right they have a green phase or they have a line phase or they have a geometric phase and and yeah. you learn a lot by by refining things uh, and refining it means trying again trying the same thing again just a little bit different mm -hmm. so there's value in that that maybe i didn't see when i did my first show mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
you mentioned faux confidence and i would argue that in this case it's not faux confidence like you going to the director and saying here's my design this is what it should be i would say that's deserved trust in yourself and it's earned earned confidence yeah yeah it's earned that's fair earned confidence i like earned confidence (laughs) (laughs) yeah I, i believe that okay that's cool i will use that i have a part two sure how how would you say the scene has changed has it changed in that time the Ooh, art yeah. theater scene oh definitely yeah i mean I've, I've also been in several scenes now since then so like uh, yeah i've been in toronto for whatever eight eight years and in edmonton six years before that and then calgary a little bit at the beginning so the yeah the scenes even just between those three cities are very different but yeah i would say that the scenes have also also changed sort of globally at the very least nationally when i started in theater school i feel like the 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 industry was on a decline from somewhere very high that the 80s and 90s were were very good for theater so i hear uh so there were a lot of theater companies there are these big centers that that house beautiful and amazing art from all over the world in every canadian major city right there's a there's a um a jubilee auditorium in edmonton and calgary and um, the Epcor Center and, and the uh, Citadel in Edmonton. In Toronto, there's dozens of amazing theater buildings, like actual structures. Mm-hmm. And in my time, I've seen those, I, I don't want to say decline, but but a li- yeah, I guess so. I, I, I mean, audiences have declined. Audiences are also getting older. Like the audience that was buying season tickets at all these theaters in the 90s and 2000s, like they are getting older. They're not, they're not patrons anymore. So it's uh, it's tricky. I think an appreciation of of theater has also lessened because of because of things like you know TV and and movies like reaching a a, a crazy level uh, and our access mm. to it also reaching a crazy level. Like I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't see like an effect that things like Netflix have had on even just going out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not yep. not to mention going out and seeing theater which is already like a pretty big ask. That's the biggest thing I've seen change in Toronto since I've been here is that going out uh, is a big ask now in, in post-pandemic. And going out to theater is like a, a thing you got to prepare for. It's like, don't forget, we're going to see that show on Thursday. Even for me, like I, I don't see as much theater now as I used to. So yeah, I would say that's a, that's a really big change is that the appetite is there. People want to do it, but it takes maybe a little bit more energy and effort to to get them out so as artists i think that also increases our the increases the importance of our work Mm. we have to make it worth it so that's worth it in production value but worth it in thematic approach Uh, i like to uh, i like to bring up uh, there was an exhibit that i saw that was about hungarian theater designers and i saw it in 2011 i think they had done uh, a lot of the theater at that time in hungary was was not supported by the government it was solely supported by patrons and people would travel much further to come see shows than what we travel. You know, we take like a streetcar or, or we drive, we all have cars. We drive 10 minutes to go see a show. People would come and see the shows and, and therefore the shows had to be worth it. And they had to be like politically relevant and it gave them uh, yeah, a power of, of a very captive audience. But because they had that captive audience, they, they really had to, work work for it but the, their theater was very on point 
uh, with what mm -hmm. they wanted to tell their their people, their their patrons. I feel like that's where we are now. I feel like we have the we have the attention when we have the attention of the audience. We can't mm -hmm. squander it. So and I yeah, and I think that's a good place to be. I think that's a better place for art to be than than abundance, if that makes sense. Yeah. Wow, what a cool perspective. Good question. Makes you want to go Angela. see a show. Yeah. <laughs> well, go the funny see a thing show. is, like, yes. I totally, <laughs> I totally relate to the. I mean, it, it's hard to leave the house harder than it was before, and I was I've always been a person who likes being home, so uh, it's this is something. But um, I do love theater, and every time that I've seen a play or a musical or whatever in in person those like i never forget those experiences the, i can mm -hmm. think i can remember how i felt i can remember it as an experience that yeah. as a person who loves movies i can compare very few movies that i've seen like i have a sm yeah. way smaller percentage of movies that i've seen that stuck with mm -hmm. me as an experience compared to the few you know shows that i've been able to see so there's yeah. there's definitely a huge impact to being there and seeing all this being created in front of your yeah. eyes that's pretty yeah well I, I think part of it is because it's not as easily accessible you know it, mm -hmm. if if you could sit on the i mean they have tried this like you can sit and watch theater from home now but mm -hmm. you know sitting there at home in your pjs with a bowl of popcorn partially watching it having a conversation pausing it getting up coming back yeah it's uh I don't think it does theater any favors. I think I think theater, I yeah, it really does have to happen in you know in a sprint in some ways. Keep the attention mm -hmm. and then oh, let it go, uh, and it just stays with you in this like romanticized package in your heart or your brain or your memories. Like I'm sure the theater that I saw that got me into this industry is not nearly as was not nearly as good as I remember it. You know, like it, I remember the sets being twice as big and and mm -hmm. just as and twice as amazing and the performances being just like so, you know, and now that I do it all the time, uh, it's hard to live up to that. Even those 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 like memories that I have that are, yeah, burnt, burned into me and just like, yeah, yeah permanent parts of me. Oh, that's completely crazy. relate to that. Completely relate yeah. to that. My high school in New Brunswick was huge on drama like it, it was not it was not just big in like the drama program for students there but uh it was a big thing for people in the community kids in the community to come to drama school like in the summer so it was it was a big uh thing and maybe it's new brunswick there's not that much going on but it would be like billboards advertising the high school awesome. drama show I, com I compare it to like um high school football in the States, right? Like yeah. it's treated as, as if it's professional in the way that people go to see it. And it was, it was like that. And well, I remember when my, my family went to see like the first show, it, we still talk about it. We're like that. How are those kids not professional? How am I not seeing them on billboards? I don't even right. know. I looked them up at one point. I was like, they must be. <laughs> These people were so <laughs> talented. We just felt like we were in Hollywood. Like, you know, it was, it was the tops of the tops. And, and I also yeah. wonder, was it that good or was it just <laughs> we just remember it that way but that doesn't matter right you still have that like uh memory yeah yeah, yeah definitely that feeling stays you said you know you get to be mathematical in this in this role and that's yeah. not something i typically connect uh so i want to hear about that and then also the fact that there's like a manual element to it and how does that help you to to be in the moment do you did you feel like doing 
manual whether I don't really know what it is, but I'm, I'm assuming you're like building models or something. And, mm. and does that help you be in the moment? Uh, I, I find for me that when I was, I was comparing it to knitting the other day, like I think people do these things because it, mm. it, it, it's just very centering. I was cutting my dog's hair, <laughs> so nothing's killed, but I felt like, oh, this is bringing me so much like peace to just be focused on one thing and have all of my mind and my body connected into making this thing work. What do you what do you see in your role that may maybe have some of that? Or... Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, actually, they sort of um, these two sort of questions, yeah, dovetail very well into each other. So, yeah, the the math aspect of it is like the uh, the reason why I I think of myself more as a designer and and maybe less of an artist is because design by sort of definition has to have like a function attached to it, um, other than just mm -hmm. appearing beautiful or, or grotesque or, or whatever. Uh, so that function is usually some, some, some element of math is involved to achieve that function for me. So like lighting design, it's, it's angle and beam and intensity and in set design, it's dimensions and, and fit and composition. So uh, when I approach it from an artistic way, I'm using, I'm using the feelings. When I approach it from, from the design, I'm approaching it from math most of the time and that is is where my strength was in my schooling was in much more in math and it, and we know that 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 is a a product of photography as well that like photography and and pop music you know there, there, there's math in everything that we do and i love that uh and also breaking those rules also has value and and so yeah that's that's where a lot of it comes in is uh, and it mostly comes in, in in composition but also a lot of it is drafting I spend a lot of time in this exact spot looking at these two monitors, drafting shows, uh, drawing all the lines that will eventually become painted or fabric or, or wood or metal or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I spend a lot of time clicking, drawing, doing calculations, but it's all for artistic reason. It's all to create something that's in no way engineered. It's like fleeting. Yeah, the actual like performance of it is is yeah not at all like that, um, but it's a means to that end. The manual aspect that you're sort of like the knitting, the knitting version, mm -hmm. uh, model making, is huge for that, and I found it very therapeutic in the pandemic actually to go back and like some of the shows that I uh, I designed and I did like um, computer models for. Like I did, um, there's a bunch of those on my website. I built a model, but I built it on a computer. So it's like, uh, it's lit and there's like cameras that can show you what it looks like from this seat in the house versus this seat and that kind of thing. I find that method to be much more useful for most of the directors I work with. But when I make one of those digital models, I don't make a paper model because uh, mm -hmm. I can't do both. But I found making paper models of some of the shows that I never had time to do models for before. I, I did that in the pandemic as a like, as yeah, uh, as a method of of just like keeping my craft, um, mm -hmm. but also just cool. keeping my brain occupied. Also, it's very much like doing a puzzle or like a coloring book. You could say like s focusing on small details. It can be very therapeutic at calming, calming your mind, or 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 just putting the blinders on and focusing on focusing on something like that. Yeah. Yeah, um, definitely. It's also like, I mean, just drawing in general, I find very, very therapeutic. I used to draw every day 
I got too busy. I stopped drawing every day. And then you start sucking. <laughs> when you stop using your craft every day, you start getting worse at it. Uh, but mm. during the pandemic, I took to doing something like there's a practice called doing your morning pages. It's, it's, uh, I think it's from a book called The Artist's Way. Uh, and you basically every morning, it's, a, it's actually a writer, I think, who wrote the book. And it's like every morning you wake up and you do three pages of just whatever you want, of crap, of good stuff, whatever. But if you get in the habit of doing three pages every day, every morning, it'll make you a better artist is basically the, what the book suggests. So I did that during the pandemic, but I, I called them my morning pages, like M-O-U-R-N. Like mm -hmm. I'm like mourning the, the demise of theater in the face of this <laughs> pandemic. I'm mourning that I don't have a job anymore and that I can't see my family and friends. And, and those three pages were like drawings. I would draw or I would write or I would, you know, and that's so good for you as a human, like to do that. Like, it's mm -hmm. not just an artist, artist thing. I think it's, as a human, it's so good to spend a little bit of time doing that every day. I mean, other people, like some people do exercise, like they get up and do exercise. That's, that, this is my version of that. Not that I don't exercise. I also have to exercise. <laughs> but, but that's my exercising my brain, basically exercising my drawing hand. And yeah, that's, that's the oh, very wait. manual part of my job that I, I love. I love that. Wow, good answer. I'm amazed at some of how some of Angela's questions have just opened you up to ridiculously amazing answers. <laughs> or long-winded responses. Oh. <laughs> no, they're really good. I wanted to ask, uh, what is the f do you have a favorite performance mm -hmm. or piece that you have been a part of? Uh, I have yeah, I have two. My first one is a show I did called Terminus. It was the show I told you about that I did for basically no money that we didn't know it was going to work out and it ended up exploding and being very mm -hmm. popular. I don't uh. love it for any of those reasons. I love it because it was like really hard to do. And uh, there was some like really, there was a major challenge that we had to overcome. And by finding a way to overcome that challenge, we accidentally created something awesome. And I created mm -hmm. it with really good people who were like totally on board to do this really hard thing. And when we found it together, and we like literally found the design together in a room, like I was trying something and they tried something and it just, it just worked. Wow. And yeah, I love that show. Yeah, it was called Terminus. The uh, second show I have is a show I did more recently uh, in 2019. Uh, it was a show called Marjorie Prime. And it was with a very, a different group of people but I loved them all. They were amazing. Um, some of the most um, impressive uh, actors I've ever worked with, collaborators and fabricators I've ever worked with. And we meticulously planned everything for that show. We put a lot of care into every aspect of the show, not just the performance, but the design and how it was executed. And, and it was really great because it gave us so much time to refine it and make it kind of perfect. But we did it for a very small audience. We did it for an audience of, I think, 55 people. Wow. And I mean, 55 people a night. But it was in Toronto's yeah. smallest theater. It was in uh, the Coal Mine Theater. And it's very, very small. And it's some of the best work I've ever done. And yeah, similarly, like it, a lot of care was put into it by everybody. And uh, wow. I would do a show with all those people again in an absolute heartbeat. Yeah. Marjorie Prime and Terminus, my favorites. Sorry, Good everybody answer. else. Sorry, every other show I've ever done. But those two are my favorites. Sorry. 
it's a it's a more honest answer he always got to have a favorite you can't be yeah. like oh i love them all yeah they're, they're not they're not my kids you know i don't have to be <laughs> yeah, i'm allowed to have bias that's super cool i like those choices because they kind of answered my rapid fire question my, my question was okay. going to be what was um a surprising moment like something that happened in a show in the development of a show that you didn't see coming and it sounds like terminus was kind of that but maybe you want to elaborate mm. on that one or pick something else oh yeah that's hard <laughs> surprise i mean that one was definitely a surprise like i um yeah i guess yeah i guess jerusalem or um i guess terminus was a surprise i did another show called jerusalem that comes to mind it, Jerusalem was kind of like an act, like an accidental success in some ways. Um, it was a big show. It was a, a very big show. Because it was so big, I was so worried about it that I started really early. And I was like, I don't know how to do this. And I just started reaching out to people to get help. And I was like surprised that they were excited to work on mm -hmm. it with me. And uh, before I knew it, I had a team of people that was larger than I'd had on a lot of projects. And... I just was like, no, I'm just going to get us all together in a room. And we started working on it. And um, and it turned out so well. And it was so good. And everybody kind of left that project of this of this sort of tight group that we'd sort of made feeling good about it. And I, and I felt great about it. I was like, oh, my God, I want to work like this all the time. And I, yeah, I chased that for a while. I was like, let's, let's find more people to bring on. And sometimes it's just mm -hmm. not cost effective to do that. Like, we, there's not enough money yeah. to hire people for mm -hmm. their time. And and you don't want to half hire people either. Like you don't want to say like, oh, this is all I have. So, uh, but yeah, that was a real, it was a big surprise that I, that it would go that well and work that way. Cause I, up until that point, I had been used to doing a certain amount of it myself and really holding the reins. And then once I actually relinquished some of that and hired some people who are good in other fields to work with me, I, I learned a lot from them and built a lot of friendships and stuff on that show. It was kind of a surprise. The success of it wasn't a big surprise. It, it had it had a, a wonderful actor and TV star Kim Coates in it. I don't know if you know Kim Coates, but he's hilarious and amazing to work with. He's sure. um yeah look at look him up. He's great. Anyway, he was he was amazing in the show, and it, and it's a big part of its success is due to due to him. And but um but the surprise was that the that we pulled kind of pulled it off. It was a very big show. So yeah. Uh -oh. mm -hmm. That's There's a, a lesson one. in there somewhere. Yeah. somewhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and like both takes, like it was so amazing, even with people working. And also you couldn't just chase that forever. Like it, some of these things, they have to happen organically, I guess. It's... Yeah. One, one approach does not work for everything. Frustratingly so. But, uh, <laughs> but also yeah. interestingly so, right? Otherwise but also boring. interesting. Same thing every time. <laughs> also interesting. I'm full of dichotomies today. <laughs> I love it. If you were to tell our listeners one thing that you'd like them to know, what would it be? Oh, okay. Well, I gotta tie. I gotta tie some threads together here. So, <laughs> based on how this this chat started, and about confident or faux confident, or or being earned earned confident, I think if I were to say anything to to the listeners, I would say know who your champions are and like listening, listen to the people who, who care about you. Cause yeah, I, I, I think, I think a, a, a very popular, like self-affirming, you know, advice people receive is like, believe in yourself, which is like, mm -hmm. I think legit advice. 
but I think everybody also has has champions that but maybe believe in them more. And I, if I only listened to myself, I wouldn't be where I am. I could, you know, I could be somewhere else and that would also be fine. But, but yeah, I feel after this conversation that we've had that I am very lucky to have some people who championed me in a number of different directions in my life that led me to be here. And, and yeah, and there's, yeah, there's no greater champion for me than, than my partner, Lori. And yeah, I can't imagine where I would be without without her and, and other champions along the way. So I kind of just want to tell everybody to like, yeah, keep your friends close, I guess. That's it. That well, is great what solid an answer. advice. It's, yeah. It's actually eerily close to an answer we got on the last recording we did. Oh really? Okay. And as you're as you're answering it, I was like, he must have heard that episode, but I haven't <laughs> put it out yet. So I you know, know what? You no, the only episode I listened to was the first one. Actually, I listened to the first one like with your introduction. And oh, I knew the, all the improv, the improv stuff, and its importance to you. Oh sweet. Yeah. So well, I made up all that shit about improv. <laughs> <laughs> you did a great job. It was great acting. Um. Thank you again, Nick. This was this has been awesome. I am a huge fan of yours now. Um, thanks for um, not just assuming it was a dream and going back and checking your messages. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. My uh, my pleasure. Well, thanks for thanks for reaching out. Yeah. I am going to almost tie my next trip to Toronto to go see one of these shows because I I have huge. FOMO now that's fear of missing out <laughs> like, yeah. I need to see this in person so thanks thanks for sharing all that today that's oh awesome. thank you so much for having me 